and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Aisha Hazarika, and I'm very excited to be doing my first daily podcast. Remember, you can support the podcast on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. You'll get every edition early without ads, plus extremely classy mugs and t-shirts too and exclusive access to all our live streams. And there's another one coming soon, so you can snoop around our houses and watch us drinking online. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. But on today's edition, the restrictions we've been living with for two months are starting to ease. But will we have to live with the legal consequences of legislation made in haste for a lot longer? Police have issued some 14,000 fines for breaches of lockdown rules, but evidence is mounting that many of them were flawed. A CPS review of all 231 prosecutions in England found that all 44 charges brought under the Coronavirus Act, which allows officers to remove or detain suspected infectious persons, were incorrect, including 13 wrongful convictions. And civil liberties groups are calling for a review of all fixed penalty notices. Was the legislation badly framed or was it bundled through Parliament without enough scrutiny or did some of the rules have no real legal force at all? Um, We also know that there are concerns about the the new tracing app that's um, coming on board in terms of privacy concerns. The uh, Human Rights Joint Committee this week um, raised concerns about that and they actually want to bring forward a a new bill um, looking at how uh, privacy can can be protected. So joining me today by automatic operation of law is David Allen Green. He's an eminent constitutional lawyer, an all-round Twitter champion, regular on our big sister podcast, Romaniacs, and our greatest living Brummie, apart from Jess Phillips, obviously. Hello, David. How are you? Oh, hello. Uh, I don't think your excitement at doing a podcast is going to last much longer, interviewing a <laughs> Brummie solicitor for 30 minutes about public health law. It really is probably <laughs> the most dismal-sounding podcast ever. Uh, <laughs> And I'm not an eminent constitutional lawyer. I'm barely even a constitutional lawyer. Uh, I think just giving you like an honorary title, like you're eminent. Just, and it's a pity, really, because constitutional law shouldn't be interesting or fun at all. And and the idea that anybody should be known as a constitutional lawyer at the moment is actually just really a bad sign about how things have gone in the last four or five years. I know. It is amazing how suddenly constitutional law has become, and I hate to say the word, sexy because of all the madness that we find ourselves in um constitutional law is really about the parameters of of political action it really sets the rules of the game Uh, and so if there is too much discussion about the actual parameters about the rules of the game then then there's something really wrong going on and it means that there's a political a, a political process and a political system which just is not working. You should not have this strain on the parameters. Yeah, absolutely. And they've certainly been strained. It feels like they're about to be kind of tested to um, destruction. But listen, for our listeners, and also for me, because I'm not mm-hmm. a complete expert in, in any of this, can you just explain to us exactly how the Coronavirus Act went through Parliament and, and why you're so concerned about the way it became law? Because a lot of people will probably think, well, surely this was just incredibly needed because we needed people to listen to the public health advice. So, you know, we had to kind of scare people and, and have an act. But could you just take us through the basics of what happened? Well, the, base, the basics are that it isn't really just about the act you mentioned. That's only one part of the 
uh, of the law which has been introduced. Uh, there has been an act, which is an act of parliament, uh, which has gone through parliament and has been voted on by MPs and, and peers, just like any normal act of parliament. But there has also been regulations, the coronavirus regulations. These have been made not under that act, but under another act, uh, another act from 1984, which is the Public Health Act, which is the legislation for dealing with uh, pandemics, contagious diseases, infectious diseases, and and such like. Uh, the regulations, which most people are familiar with in their day-to-day lives, i.e. the ones which stop you leaving the house without a reasonable excuse, stop gatherings, uh, close down places of worship, and so on, they've all been made not by the Act, but by regulations which uh, were made under the 1984 Public Health Act. And you mentioned in your introduction that people would expect these sort of things to have gone through Parliament. Well, in fact, the regulations didn't go through Parliament. Uh, they were enacted by fiat, by, by ministerial decision, and it was five, six, I think, possibly longer weeks before they were even voted on by MPs. You've, you've, you've got a, an array of legislation here. Some of it which has been voted on by MPs, some of which have just been introduced by, by, by ministers, all of which have legal force, all of which are binding. Uh, and there are concerns about how some of this has gone through. The regulations, for example, which created these wide-ranging, pops, the widest-ranging prohibitions in peacetime, uh, never had a parliamentary vote. Wow. So from a constitutionalist point of view, if we're just looking at this like a sort of first year constitutional and admin law student, it's an extraordinary situation that you had these wide ranging prohibitions, which at a stroke criminalised normal human activity, turned all social activity into antisocial activity, was done without a parliamentary vote and created criminal offences for which people could get, obviously, criminal records and so on. So the question is, is yes, that is extraordinary. But really, it was a public health crisis. Surely something had to be done. And yes, legislation did have to be brought in quite quickly. But there is the question of, was it appropriate to bring this sort of legislation in so quickly? And could it have been done better? And does it still need to be in force? And in terms of the the legislate, well, as you say, it's it's an array of legislation. For you, what's what are the most worrying aspects of it? To be from to take a, a point of view of of, of a constitutionalist, uh, there is a question of uh, uh, legitimacy. Obviously, the law has force; you have to obey it, and unless it's set aside by a court of competent jurisdiction, it is the law. So it has to be complied with. Uh, but laws can only really be sustainable, not only if they have legal force, but if they're legitimate, if they are seen as having uh, the appropriate essence of, of, of propriety. And these laws were brought in with wide-ranging prohibitions without any parliamentary vote. I can't see how that can be satisfactory. But there were other problems. So you've got, you've got the problem of legitimacy. 
But you also have the problem of practicality. These laws were badly drafted. Some of the laws would have been improved by being properly scrutinised before being introduced. To improve, the, to improve the drafting and the, improve the drafting. decision. We've had these prohibitions. We've come through and there have been two lots of clarifications by, by government lawyers, sort of fine-tuning the law because they botched the drafting in the first instance. And so we're now in a fairly ridiculous situation where regulations which were only brought in in March have been amended twice, been subject to lots of guidance, some of which doesn't make sense and some of which contradict what the law says. And people are expected to know what to follow, what to do, what to, how to avoid getting legal sanction for what they're doing. And it's a preposterous situation. So even putting constitutional propriety on one side, you've ended up in a situation where you've got fairly unenforceable laws and people not being at all aware or clear as to what the law actually is, what their obligations actually are. And if you couple that with a very confusing comms message from from number 10 about what we're all meant to be doing and not doing, it, it just kind of adds a layer of confusion as well. I mean, one of the points that has been made is um, that the the confusion and the lack of clarity means, for example, for people with mental health issues, they're quite concerned that um, they could be detained without a second opinion from a doctor or increased detention times. Have you seen, have you got those concerns? Have people brought those concerns to you? Uh, anecdotally, yes. I've had all sorts of people uh, get in touch because I, I I have a Twitter account which has got far too many followers. And I said uh, I'm interested in the sort of mental health issues on, on, on this. And I had people contact me saying, can I leave the house? I'm scared to leave the house. I might get arrested. And these were circumstances where there were reasonable excuses set out in the legislation which would have enabled these people to have left the houses. There was nothing stopping them at law from going out for the good of their health or or, or, to, or to exercise or so on. They could do and there was nothing stopping them. But because the comms message was so confused and even ministers were confused, but the health minister and, and the Transport Minister both misstated the law in saying that there were only three or four exemptions when there was actually a whole range of them. And the comms hasn't added up to the law, and the law in itself doesn't add up, and it has been a preposterous situation. And I know we are supposed to sort of just nod along and say it was a public health emergency and things had to be done at speed, but how much are we nodding along to here? A not sufficient effort was put in either into the legal side or the comms side of this emergency, which of course doesn't, which accords with the lack of uh, lack of decent policy in getting the kit together and dealing with testing and and tracing. And I think one of the things that has just, uh, you know, look, this has all happened, and I think it is important to see that, of course, we're in completely extraordinary. Um, circumstances you know mm. you know we've had to rush this through there's you know there's I think that, that the public will probably have a lot of sympathy for, for why this had to be 
rush through. But clearly the confusion is is very, very real. So when we watch these daily press briefings or when we watch the Prime Minister address the nation, I've had a lot of people ask me, and I think this is probably a question that would be useful for you to answer for our listeners, People are saying that is everything the Prime Minister is saying, is that now the law? And in the supplementary information that comes up on the website, which has the word guidance at the top, is that the law now? There's a a great deal of confusion uh, about what the law is, what the rules are, what the guidance is. And it isn't just this current emergency. It has been a problem for some time within the British political system that Things are enforced as if they are law and, in fact, they are only actually official guidance or official policy. But the problem has become incredibly uh, grave now because even very senior people, even senior police officers, cannot distinguish between things which have legal effect and things which are actually advisory, which are guidance. You've had police officers... Experienced police officers making arrests on on the basis of 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 conduct which actually isn't a criminal offence under the under the regulations. You had the CPS, who are supposedly the people who are the ones who know how to prosecute, know what boxes to tick, what procedures to follow. As you mentioned in your introduction, they've had to put aside a whole range of prosecutions under the the Act because they had actually not understood the legislation. And so I'm afraid I I, I will not buy the it was done in a rush, what could you do excuse. There is so much which has gone wrong, and people who should have known the difference between the guidance and the law, and I don't mean just lay people, I don't mean Mm. uh, even just politicians, police officers and prosecutors and senior lawmakers don't seem to know the difference and how citizens are supposed to regulate their own conduct to avoid criminal liability in this circumstance is is bewildering. And do you think it's one of the reasons why there have been quite a lot of inconsistencies um, in terms of different sort of policing um, approaches in different areas? Like, for example, North Yorkshire police issued, I think it's like well over 800 fines and Warwickshire only 31. Is that because of obviously that there is confusion there. Are some forces, do you think, overreaching in terms of how they're interpreting the, the guidance and their discretion? Well, coming from the Midlands, I would actually say that's probably a fair balance between Warwickshire and, and North Yorkshire. But looking at it more seriously, uh, such discrepancies are not unusual when you have vague legislation and no nationally agreed guidance of course there will be discrepancies Uh, and often with new law when police officers uh, are not used to the law they will often misunderstand it well that's not to actually insult police officers that's just the nature of law Uh, it's very difficult for them you know that everything is you know they've not really had time to get up to speed with mm. it all you know there's a huge amount of public scrutiny on them everyone is terrified about the situation so it's kind of like a perfect storm of of confusion on on all on on everyone's part yes but there is a deeper conceptual problem here a, a, a problem which goes to the very fundaments of this police are there to maintain amongst other things public order and and 
as far as it goes, that is what they can do, and they are generally quite good at it, although they can obviously make mistakes and, and so on. But police are there to maintain public order. They are there to enforce, amongst other things, public order law. And this is what they are used to doing. And they use their coercive force, which, are, which is basically assaulting people with legal excuse. That is what an arrest is. It's an assault, but you get away with it because it's lawful. They used to be able using these powers. But the coronavirus emergency is not a public order emergency. These aren't riots in the street. It is a public health emergency, and therein lies a significant difference. Mm. And so enforcing public health legislation on as if it was public order has led to certain absurdities. For example, regardless of the need for social distancing, uh, police have been actually proactively contact, getting in close proximity of people in parks and elsewhere to try and find out the reasons for people's journeys or the reasons for people's recreations. That is not the purpose of public health legislation. Public health legislation is there to try and stop the disease spreading. And often, if you look at police conduct, especially in the early days, it was almost as if they didn't realise themselves that they could be carriers of the disease. Well, yeah, there was quite a lot of um, footage. I mean, I, I remember a footage of a of a young uh, male journalist who was really getting hassled by the the, the police, and they and you know he was actually saying you you could be giving to me because they were really really up in in yeah. his face. And we all saw a lot of footage. We also there's the stuff about those were riot police. They were from the yes. TSA and they were at Finsbury Park. That's and right. Bless, bless their little cotton socks. That was the only way they could think of enforcing public health legislation because that's the only thing they can do. They are hammers and everything looks like nails. And then there was the story about the, the, the drones, the people going for a walk. And then, of course, there was a story about the shopping. But I think that might have actually... Was that the, the, the police as well saying that they might threaten to search people's shopping? Well, we didn't know how serious that was. And sometimes some of the, the more daft suggestions weren't from police officers, but from those who actually operated their Twitter accounts and so can't, may not have been the people in uniform. But yes, you can point and, and, and either jeer or laugh or mock or shake your head or whatever at the people in, charged with enforcing the law. But the deeper problem is... You were using public order law and approach for a public health situation and, and it didn't quite work. To play devil's advocate and put my kind of um, lay person on the, on the street hat on, what do you say to people who would say, well, hang on a minute, I don't care about this, just dancing on the head pin at the end of the day, you know, we had to get people to stay in, we had to get people to, to socially distance. And so, you know, we had to do this. And of course, okay, it's maybe not in the right legal box in terms of it being public health and public order. But from a common sense, common sense, the quote phrase, point of view, surely this was just necessary in, in, a, in a short amount of time and we just had to crack on and do something. Yes, the something must be done approach. It was an emergency and people needed to socially distance. One way of sending that message was by creating uh, strict coercive laws. 
yes, law does have that function, although generally speaking, if you want to send a message, use a pigeon. Uh, the law is not there for sending messages. The law is there to regulate behaviour. You are so right. How, so how do you think, how, what, what do you think the government should have done? If you were in charge, what, do you, what would you have done? I'm not, I'm not actually disagreeing. I think in the short term, you possibly needed a short, sharp shock of actually saying this sort of behaviour is so unacceptable that it will be criminal. But the law needs to do more than that. It needs to be consistently applied. It needs to be practicable. It needs to actually be credible. And now the law has gone from one extreme to the other. It went from being overzealously imposed and almost being discredited by how far the police were pushing it because the police thought we've got to enforce this as if it's public order legislation. And now it's gone to the other extreme where in certain parts of, of, of large cities, you would be surprised to find out that there was a lockdown in place. Yeah. The law has not even been taken seriously. Yeah. And so... If you want to play devil's advocate, I will, I, will, I will concede you the point that, yes, a signal did need to be sent and law was part of that signal. But that has been at the cost of actually having credible law there in the short to medium term. And perhaps if you're taking public health seriously, it's better to have credible law in from the beginning, which is sustainable, rather than stuff which just nods along and you can say, oh, it's all common sense. Let's not worry too much about the legal niceties. The thing about legal niceties is that if you do get them right up from a very early stage, it makes problems easier to de deal with uh, further down the road. Down the track. And what, what do you see as this develops and we try and ease, although we have to bear in mind there might be a, a second spike, so we may end up going back into some sort of lockdown. What should happen with the law now? You said that it's been amended um, twice. It may well be amended again. What, what should the government do on this? Should they bring in new legislation or keep tinkering with what they've got? Surprisingly, and, and, and I say this to you as you're, you're very much on the left of centre perspective, bringing in new laws is not always the solution to any particular problem. What? <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. How dare uh, you? <laughs> we, we, the law as it stands needs to be modified, amended. Regulation 6, which is the one which... Uh, regulates people's movements out of their house. I can't see it actually serving any purpose now. It is so vague and so subject to exceptions that it is impossible to have it pr properly enforced by the police. And police officers say this openly. Uh, that probably could be dispensed with. The other regulations, for example, the power of police to disperse gatherings, are probably more important and probably should be enhanced so that the police can enforce the two-metre wall where possible. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, the two-metre wall is not there in any of the legislation whatsoever. Wow. In Act or in the regulations. Wow. And so that, that by itself is the gap analysis, if we could say it was a two-metre gap, between law and, and guidance, because the very essence of the public health message which the government was trying to promote was never in the legislation at all. Just moving on, and I just want to ask you about the concerns, this app that's been um, trialled on the Isle of Wight and the new scheme of you know tracing and, and contacting people. Do you, I mean, lots of people are starting to raise some concerns about um, privacy. As I said, um, the Joint Human Rights Committee uh, Commons and Lords this week uh, published a sort of draft 
bill and, and Harriet Harman, who chairs that, is has expressed concerns. What's your take on on the next bit coming down the track? Because I presume they'll have to introduce legislation on that as well. Yeah, of course they should do. It's There's two general points to make, both of which are cynical. It's a government IT project, so it's going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> and the government's going to be collecting personal data, so of course they're going to abuse it. And anybody who actually has a view separate to those is, 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 is naive. Of course, this is what happens. Uh, I've, insofar that this is an attempt to collect, collate, analyse, use uh, highly sensitive personal data, it really does need to have a sound legal basis. It needs to be scrutinised by MPs. And so, yes, I would say it would need to have a statutory basis because I don't think the existing legislation is robust enough for such a great, a great initiative. Um, but, one, uh, of, one of the proposals that was put forward by the committee was that um, data should be deleted um, after the pandemic is, is over. But I suppose who would decide when yeah. the pandemic was, was, was over? I mean, there's so many of these issues that, um, that need to be teased out. And of course, they need to be teased out. But what kind of parliament are we i mean parliament is coming back um in some form but i feel like with something like this actually the house of lords is really important in terms of doing its job to scrutinize legislation and quite a lot of the lords are not going to be able to come back because they're mm. older and they're shielding so uh, th- i think there's a lot of anxiety about how this big bit of legislation, really important piece of legislation will get properly scrutinised. And let's be honest, sometimes the Commons doesn't do that great a job of the scrutiny. The scrutiny is the really Commons, done at the Lords. The Commons as a whole doesn't, but the, uh, the select committees can be quite good on, on, on this sort of thing. And it would be good to have a, a, a dedicated select committee dealing with these the, sort of issues. Just like we had a Brexit uh, committee mm-hmm. in the last Parliament, a sort of coronavirus committee with the with MPs with particular specialisms in the different aspects of of the emergency sitting together on a select committee would be a very sensible thing perhaps you could even have one of the joint joint house uh, there are joint committees from time to time between the commons and the lords that would be a sensible idea when this is done and there will be the inevitable well I say inevitable public inquiry I mean who knows if there even will be one that there should be one how much do you think these issues will or should be um, focused on in terms of um, rights and the whether you know ministers acted within their powers and all this kind of stuff? Well, a public inquiry is often in place when other institutions either have failed or can't deal with the magnitude of of, of a problem. Uh, they should always be an exception. Uh, a public, in- a, a sort of Chilcot type public inquiry uh, would report thoroughly, but in such a long, t- such a long time away that it wouldn't make any, would not make any practical difference. Uh, the Hillsborough inquiry again is a, is a good model where ni- ninety six people died, but we're dealing with a situation where because of public policy failures. We could be in a situation where 30,000 have died in a, who may not have died and need not have died had public policy been different. Mm. And so we are in a cir- circumstance where we have a magnitude of a problem which is probably incomparable 
to anything we've ever had a public inquiry with before. Should there be a public inquiry? Of course there should be. What should it look into? Well, what were the policy failures which led to, to, to the situation where in February, March, we ended up in the situation in, with the predicament, in the predicament we did end up in? And what were the operational failures? And so in a way, this is like Chilcot on policy, Hillsborough on immediate causes, up to the scale of 30,000 deaths. That's going to be a big inquiry. And if it ever does report, it will be probably after every politician and senior official involved has long left the scene. Yeah, yeah. I think there should be more use of, of coroner's inquests. And just explain for, for our listeners that not if we explain why that would be so beneficial now. A coroner's inquest is into a, a certain types of death, uh, unexpected deaths, but also uh, thanks to the European Convention on Human Rights and, and as illustrated by the Hillsborough inquest, the second one, you can have a coroner's inquest which looks into the broader circumstances of a death when that flows from some sort of public failure. And it is broad enough to include policy failures. And so if a number of people, especially in, in care homes and hospitals and prisons, have been adversely affected and have died, uh, then the coroner should be able to look at what actually went wrong. In the same way, the Hillsborough inquest looked at what actually went wrong with the policing of, of, of that football match. But we could, and we could do that now and hopefully try and learn some lessons we now. We could, but we can't because the chief coroner who has made a decision that coroners can't look at the wider circumstances of, of the current deaths and only look at the immediate cause of death, in effect. And the reason why he's had to say that is essentially our coroner's system is incredibly under-resourced. Yeah. And so the coroners are going to have a real difficulty in actually keeping up with the, the, with the, the deaths as they are, rather than actually looking at circumstances. But I would say that it would be useful either to have a public inquiry announced now or to actually allow senior coroners, experienced coroners, to take groups of cases to actually see if there's anything we can recommend now yeah. whilst decision-making is still taking place. The problem with a public inquiry is that often they say, well, if people had known things differently at the time, they could have made different decisions. Yeah. But the thing is, is we are now at the time. And it is literally life and death. You know, the learning things now could significantly um, improve things and, and and help people on the ground now. I mean, my, my anxiety is, I mean, I share your anxiety. I've, you know, seen many, many uh, public inquiries, very important pieces of work, but they happen often, you know, they can happen decades after the event, as we, well, you know, as we know from, from, from Hillsborough. And they're, they're great pieces of kind of political, historical sort of research but yeah it's it's way way too it's way too late and well, the, um, other form, the other form of accountability we've mentioned parliament and we've mentioned inquiries in public uh, and coroners yes there's going to be litigation there is going to be so much litigation after this and the reason is because so many people have suffered different types of loss and damage uh yeah. when back in back in 1901 1902 uh they changed the date of the coronation and you'll remember this because from your law uh, law degree days, uh, I probably will do. I was a terrible student. <laughs> the, law, the, the case law, which came out of that, uh, actually was the basis of the English contract law of of, of frustration from that day till this. Yeah. 
And that was just because of when a coronation was moved unexpectedly. Uh, the disruption caused by the virus and then by the legal operational responses, people have suffered immense loss and damage. Not just big business, loads of people. And when people have suffered loss and damage and it's the fault of somebody else, there will be litigation. Mm. And it may well be that the litigation lasts far longer than the virus does. Wow. Well, there's so much to, to look forward to um, with this. And <laughs> don't forget, we're also going to have a, a horrendous, we're going to have the mother of, of all recessions coming down the, the track as well. Um, David? This, this goes back to the point I made just a moment ago. That is why it's so important to get the legal stuff right to begin with, because it doesn't only have to serve the immediate purpose of sending your signal. It needs to serve medium to long service, medium to long term purpose of actually withstanding some fairly heavy litigation afterwards. Well, I think that feels like a really um, important point on which to, to to finish for today. David Alan Green, thank you so much uh, for no, joining me. On the daily bunker, I was, I, I, I was really, the, I, my expectations have been surpassed in terms of, of interviewing you. After you're like, oh, you're not going to find this very exciting. I find it riveting, and I'm sure um, our listeners will done. Oh yeah, quickly before we go, just yeah. one final question: yeah. What is it like having Nigella Lawson as such a fan? I love the fact that she loves you. <laughs> oh, I, I, it's all a bit strange because I. I <laughs> I have this social media account and I really don't know what to do with it most of the time. And I only, I, the only way I can deal with it is by imagining all my followers are bemused Russian porn bots. <laughs> uh, it, 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 and I thought after Brexit, I could just go back into some sort of relative obscurity because all the exciting constitutional law stuff was dying down and there would be less sense of emergency and 2020 would be nice and peaceful. Uh, and then another huge legal-related crisis uh, uh, comes up. I I think it would be far better for everybody if if, 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 if constitutional law-focused Twitter accounts became fairly bland and obscure again. <laughs> well, in the meantime, when they're not, we're very, very grateful um, to, to have you um, be such a strong presence uh, on Twitter. Thanks so much, um, no, thank David. You and I, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll be back on again very soon. Listeners, remember there's a full-length podcast every Wednesday and a bunker daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursday and Friday. We will never knowingly leave you under-podcasted in these anxious times. If you could leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, that would be amazing. Stu from Penrith, he said, even the episodes that look less interesting actually turn out to be really good. So beat that for a recommendation. And if you want to get the show early and without ads, do search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up. See you soon. Thanks very much. Bunker Daily was presented by Aisha Hazarika and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.